healing the epidemics of mental health and eating disorders with the world's largest love-based movement in human history. Right, Nikos, beautiful to see you and like in this beautiful natural light of the Northern Rivers <laughs> and like see you in the flesh to a podcast with someone. Um, so the first question we ask on the Vital Veda show is what did you do today? What was your daily routine? Because in, in Ayurvedic medicine, do you know much about Ayurveda? Have you heard about it? You heard about it a bit. Okay, good. Because Dhinacharya, which is what we call like daily routine, is a big thing. So do you have any rituals or anything you like to do? I do. Always the beginning of my day is a time for visioning and reflection, or for reflection and then visioning. Mm-hmm. I love to capture my dreams if I can, whilst they're fresh, and mm-hmm. um, think into or reflect on what they're trying to show me, maybe what areas of the subconscious aren't getting the acknowledgement they need and, and thus is showing up in my dream. So that's definitely a daily ritual. Uh, my coffee in the morning, mm-hmm. that's probably the greatest ritual of all time mm. in my world. <laughs> um, and I have a strong affection for that time in my day because mm. it's the time that I'll take sort of most away from, I guess, anything external other mm. than that coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and mm. I usually go for a walk. Oh. Yeah. And do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and write down your dreams or is it just the morning? I've been known to, yeah. <laughs> there was a period there that I got really into lucid dreaming mm-hmm. <laughs> and that got a bit crazy because it felt like I was living like a 24-7 mm-hmm. reality, which technically – it is, <laughs> but yeah, it was sort of, it was hyper stimulating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been through a period actually recently that I haven't slept very well. Like I've had quite broken sleep mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm just coming out of that. And so I'd never really experienced that before. And I have a deep compassion now for people that mm-hmm. don't sleep well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you remember your dreams every morning or most mornings? Usually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Strong connection to the dream world. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's related to zinc. So <laughs> up, up, up your zinc level. Maybe, yeah. maybe one aspect. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, beautiful. And so, I love to, when people, when I hear about you, and I'm sure what, what you're known for is, is love, but all the word, if you, can, you have to give one word, <laughs> you're like the love woman. <laughs> but I want to like really unpack what you do and, just go beyond this kind of romantic cliche or butterflies and rainbows which mm. we'd associate with love. And I want to know because essentially you're, what, you're, what I see what you are doing is you're like many people we interview on this podcast who are essentially healers and those there to uplift the collective conscious towards greater unity and peace. But it's very, I find it interesting that you've, take, you've chosen words like love and you've kind of implemented that into your marketing or whatever the way that you're communicating mm. your message and your mission we were talking earlier you're, you're on like a you're like a love missionary going <laughs> to instead of preaching you're yeah, going to in a way yeah so i just want to ask you about that like that mm. do you, is that ever kind of conflicting is it challenging to kind of go down that direction because like i some people may disguise it as stress release or They'll use scientific terms quite a lot to just mm. be more relatable to the general public. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack in in that question. I think where I'll start is, did I choose love or did it choose me? <laughs> yeah, <of laughs> I don't course. know if I really chose it. Um, in a way, I had to choose it back. But yeah, I mean, let, let's start because I think this is a really interesting track of conversation with the dilution of if, if there is love in your heart and I think ultimately in a sense of consciousness and spirituality, the core of that is love of the absolute, love of the truth, love of God, love of divinity or what's divine, the creator, is it, uh, well, I feel it's a little bit, let's say, cavalier to try and dilute the presence of God. <laughs> and I find it a lot stronger, actually, to, to stand in, in the truth of what that is, which is an all-loving, unconditional presence. And perhaps where we've gone wrong if you want to call it that, as a as a society, mm. is this need to try and make it something else? Yeah. Because um, the pathway to that, and I suppose at the core of of what I seek to do and what Love Out Loud seeks to do, is to help people really understand that right action, that right path. Because I I do think that it's become quite lost in translation in a lot of let's call them Hollywood versions of <laughs> of consciousness. Mm when ultimately it's it's a journey of integrity and it's um it's a narrow path a lot of the time. It's not it's not this wide path, you know, it's it's actually a very narrow path to choose love. But within that narrowness is huge amounts of liberation mm. and huge amounts of um uh sovereignty mm. actually and, and that's that's the paradox, you know, I think that that's kind of God's deal with us. Mm. Hey <laughs> give me everything and in return I'll unlock the whole the whole universe for you. Um yeah, so in in a general sense to me that's that's why it's been important to stand in that word mm. and to honor that word for what it really is and also I think in English we need we need thought leaders or let's call them thought pioneers to help recontextualize mm. The connotations with that word and um, expand people's understanding of that word mm. because it has been, I think, hijacked in a lot of mm. ways by Disney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about a, a couple of things you said, but, but, but perhaps first, can you explain what you do? I mean, what is Love Out Loud that you mentioned, this kind of movement which you founded? And, mm -hmm. and then how did you get to where you are now doing, you're like a full time speaker, you travel the world so much. Mm -hmm. We actually been we connected probably yeah maybe nearly a year ago and mm. been just you've been in different countries <laughs> nonstop and you're a public speaker you're doing a lot on this so yeah what do you how did you get here what is love out loud yeah is it okay if I answer in that way first so yeah. where, where did it come from yeah, because yeah, I feel definitely. like it brings a a different kind of context yeah. to to what we do because if you had told me that I would be doing what I'm doing today ten years ago mm. I just wouldn't have believed you mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, so so for me, the I guess the awareness of love and also the awareness of how much there was a void of love in our society was through my experience going through the health system at a very young age or as a teenager and just recognizing, wow, we have these systems that really are so void of love and we have all of this, um, you know, in a way, incredible advancement clinically, but is that really healing? And for me, it wasn't, you know, it being in that environment, um, recovering from anorexia, which was um, life-threatening for me at the time, what I needed most was humanity. What I needed most was love. What I needed most was mm. compassion. 
And I needed to believe, and I think at the time it would have been so helpful for that to come from sources outside of me, I needed people to believe in my ability to heal. But often what I was met with was you don't know what's good for you. Mm. You know, that the illness has distorted your perspective so much. And in a way, that's true, but there is a dominant essence of unconditional love and life and vitality inside of me that is inevitably stronger. Mm. And I think we don't have systems that help speak to that, you know, and help people trust in themselves. And one thing that my journey since then has taught me more than anything is when you um when you take a step back and allow healing to take place it's a very natural process everything about our system is trying to heal mm. trying to recalibrate trying to come back to a place of homeostasis all the time and it's very counterintuitive to what the system i think believes mm. which is we need to intervene and we need to mm. force and so this was my awakening to it and i think as well because my condition was very physical I was constantly meeting people's reaction to um, vulnerability. And I think that that's quite different to a lot of people that say go through mental health challenges or have traumas that can't be seen because it was so physical. Mm. I've read on people's faces consistently, well, that's how people relate to pain. That's how people relate to vulnerability. That's how people relate to fragility. And it started to beg bigger questions, you know, if, if people are so quick to reject or become uncomfortable in the face of a difficult conversation or a difficult circumstance. Or someone in front of you looking unhealthy, skinny, underweight. Yeah, what, what that evoked, yeah. you know. Um, and feeling, I think a lot of the time I had, I was holding them mm. because they felt so, <laughs> you know, in my vulnerable state, mm. I was actually holding them because uh, I felt bad that my state was making them so uncomfortable. Mm. And isn't that, you know, so telling of mm. privilege in the world? <laughs> no, those who are actually in the most need often find themselves holding the ignorance of, well, but that's a whole, whole other track. But this is what started to sort of come to me in, in this experience was like, what are the problems aren't being solved because we don't have the capacity to, to handle mm. what's challenging? And naturally, the next question is, well, what would evoke that? What would create that capacity? And of course, the answer is love. When you love Mm. something or someone enough, your willingness to endure Mm. what's difficult, your willingness to do the impossible, (laughs) Mm. you know, it's... I love how you just jumped to that because like the first thing that would come to my mind and of course, love, like it's the ultimate, <laughs> but it's like, okay, first you got to get more grounded more in yourself so that you can deal with people who are vulnerable and stressed and whatever. So, oh, you know, that too. But I love how it's just like straight up like love and then obvious conclusion. things will flow. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, there's dimensions of it, right? Because loving yourself and mm, being, yeah, being grounded and understanding what you need and knowing thyself, mm. that's a huge expression of love. Yeah. This is a gift that we've been given, you know, and it's um I've had to learn that on my my healing journey yeah. th- to the best of my ability. I still, you know, I still have to learn that every day what it really means. So, oh, yeah, I might be like getting off <laughs> yeah. track, but I got to ask because because when I when you said that, I'm like, okay, love like love the other person, mm-hmm. but I was initially thinking first thing is be grounded in yourself, but that really is self love, like you said. So, how much is we hear this phrase self love, mm. self care. How how much is that a prerequisite to love? You know, I, it's interesting how often I get asked a version of this question. 
you know, <laughs> like I'm loving this other person and it's starting to hurt me or I feel like it's at the, the mm. expense of me and what do I do? And I think the fundamental issue is in the question <laughs> because mm. love is not just self and love yeah. is not just you. Love is reciprocity mm. and love isn't that point of pain. Love is potentially the willingness to endure pain but love itself is not is not the pain you know and love is not the sacrifice um Mm. in that in that way at least it's not how it's experienced so it's limitless beyond just one direction yeah and it's unity you know Mm. to to really love you unconditionally is to understand that i'm not separate from you and that can be Mm. a very confronting thing for people to to really face in themselves because i think we all have examples in our life of someone that we believe we truly, deeply, unconditionally love, and yet we've been attached to how that should show up in our life, and we've had expectations, mm. um, and potentially struggled to let go of those attachments and let go of those expectations, and so within that love has come pain, and then we think love is that, you know, and I think that and that's essentially conditional. Well, unconditional there. yeah and, and you're allowed you know like yeah. relationships um to anything mm. conditional ultimately mm. like we are in a relationship within that relationship is condition yeah laws rules you know mm. uh, association so many things mm. um but i think it's important that we don't mix that up with the true presence of unconditional yeah. love and anyone that's had whether it's a <clears throat> you know uh samadhi experience or some kind of true subjective experience of um, mm. God and unconditional love. It's an undeniable. You could, there's, mm. n- it's not speculative anymore, and you're not. Yeah. You understand that it exists beyond these these points of triggers and and limitation and pain. And that's really like in my reflections when I was younger. That's what I started to recognize that when I looked at the landscape of the world, in order for us to really come to a place of wholeness as humanity and truly build a society that's based on something other than fear and something other than segregation uh, and duality, it's only love <laughs> that's going to give us the, yeah. the strength. And yeah. I was having this conversation with someone this morning that, you know, my, my path, my spiritual path, if you want to call it that, is devotionality. So it's, and I constantly get questioned on this, like how you know, what, what about, you know, boundaries and what about this? And, you know, devotionality is the continual relinquishing of attachment, you know, Mm. over to that loving presence and the willingness Mm. to demonstrate that at any cost. Mm. And people look at what they're going to lose, you Mm. know, Mm. you're like, oh, well, I'm going to lose that person. I'm going to lose that thing. I'm going to lose the kind, whatever, but let's take a moment to fall in love with what you gain. Mm. Because and it's not that it's about gain, but what it unlocks in the yes. experience is the ability to do the impossible. Because it's not us in our limited self; it's not us in our ego that does the impossible. Mm. It's the fact that that presence exists in us, and when we become a total conduit for that, then you know. I love in Christianity one of the parables is uh, the faith of a mustard seed moves mountains. Look at a mountain and say, "Move," and it will move if you're in the conviction mm. of God. And and what it's saying is that's how powerful we are. Mm. But so few people have met themselves, that their, their true self, you know, in that way because they're associated with identity and materialism more than they are mm. that essence. Mm. And I loved when you were speaking about devotion because it's like 
when you are really in that true devotion coming from the heart and that that love it it just transcends any of this mind or yeah. this intellect saying mm, but am i losing my job or this person because i'm just so in love with mm-hmm. the divine yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like this <laughs> yeah. i just had this image when you're talking like a, just an endless tunnel yeah like an infinite tunnel where that's all you it's not like you're excluding other things, no. but you're just so in love with mm. the divine. Or, but the divine can be seen in any, anything. Well, it's all things. So you're not all things. The conception is not. Yes. And it's this is the same. I think mental trickery of like, well, what am I going to lose? It's the same question as, well, how do I love myself and someone else? Mm. The problem is in the question. You're asking the wrong yeah. question <laughs> because yeah, yeah. when you're really in the presence of mm. that which is all things, you're not experiencing it that way. It's just yeah. that's not the mm. the conception is if you're that devotional to all that is, you know, the creator of all that is, then all that is has space within your, you're not yeah. in rejection of anything. Mm. You're in total allowance mm. and total, mm. yeah, reverence mm. to all yeah. the creation that's within that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking about, I've been hanging out with like bushcraft who are like also activists, environmental activists. And there's this kind of discussion going around of like, you know, we're all talking about self-love and, you know, I'm doing this for my, I need to first get myself right. Mm. And that some are saying that that's neglecting the rest or it's like Mm. not an excuse, but it's, you know, there's validity in that because some people really need to do some work, but (laughs) it's kind of like (laughs) it. Well, what are the fruits? Yeah, you know what? What? What are they? I think that mm. a lot you can speculate on everyone's process ultimately. Mm. But if we really want to see where someone's coming from, I think look at the fruits of what they've created. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. It's simple. So, how did you get to love out loud? <laughs> yeah, so that this was the the foundational thinking, yeah. I guess. Um, and then I went on a. I guess it was like a huge rite of passage from 18 for several years i traveled to communities um wanting to i guess in a way explore and and validate this hypothesis i had without being too arrogant and saying this is the way (laughs) i wanted to see if if other people could be touched Mm. the way i was touched by this um presence and that took the form of really being in servant leadership which i guess was a very unconventional experience of being so young Mm. and i'm so grateful because you know in so many ways it just gave me such an incredible perspective to live life from and i truly believe that the willingness at that time to renounce the world in a way and really move into service and that looks like um living in my van traveling to very remote rural communities often didn't have phone reception and creating spaces where people could come together and um speak truth and and share in a very honest way with loving um and accepting parameters for them to feel safe to to do that that my willingness to be in that when most of my friends were, you know, at uni drinking and, you know, getting so involved in in all of the uh, vices that life has to offer, I really went in a very different direction. What started to happen in those spaces was this really profound transformation that I knew wasn't me, you know, that it was um, it was something bigger than me that was creating this. And so naturally I started to ask, well, what really is the formula? You know, and there was a formula. 
the acceptance of of all that is and the um the conviction of truth when someone had the strength and the courage to really speak their truth mm. and they're simultaneously held in mm. in love and acceptance it's quite profound just that you know and I, we we do experience this in in relationships and friendships that we love but i guess not many people have put it under a magnifying glass in mm. today's context and and help mm. people say this is a this is a formula, you know, mm. to, to transformation. Um, it's a code. I often refer to it as a code in, in our work now that had huge impact on these communities from increased engagement in schools to lowered rates of suicide, lowered rates of addiction, breaking poverty cycles of third, fourth generation welfare. And I became quite, I guess, obsessed with doing this work and started to take longer in each community. And actually a big part of the work was listening literally just listening and after a little while I started to realize okay I'm going to segregate the stakeholders in the community so maybe it was the parents the teachers the students the police the mental health workers the council members and in their isolated groups I would go and listen and listen and listen and then you'd start to hear the projections you know that the parents would project onto the teachers and the teachers would project onto the students and the police would project onto the kids and um no one was taking responsibility mm. you know no one was really choosing the true power of love <laughs> which is the willingness to take responsibility to be response able to be in truth and my my role in this was to listen and then bring together and gently help them see where these discrepancies were occurring and it was incredible to see how many of us actually all want the same thing mm. <laughs> you know um but until we we do sort of bring things back to ourselves and say how am i a part of this you know and be willing and humble and less interested in being right and more interested in in being love does th do things start to change mm. And this journey just started to take me in crazy directions. I started using that um, insight to, um, I guess you could call it a version of advocacy politically in the federal government, which led to me being invited to become a commissioner of mental health, which was wild because I went from you know living in communities in my van to um, advising a, a $30 billion budget and having dinners with the prime minister. And it was quite a <laughs> radical you know, time of transition and, that also helped me understand that when you surrender to love, you know, I actually was experiencing hate at that time because so many people twice, three times my age had been working their whole careers to sit in that position of influence that I found myself in, not through <laughs> even mm. pursuing it, but just through being reverent to, yeah. to something bigger than me and I guess obedient, willing, willing to submit to something bigger than me. But did someone in see the work you're doing with communities and see the I started, progress. I started to, to share it yeah. with, um, with stakeholders politically just to say, hey, you know, the way that you're investing, there's other ways and mm. this is what we've achieved. You know, yeah. I, I guess I had the insight to, to understand that at the end of the day, for them, it's an economic decision. Mm. And to me, the way that they were choosing to invest didn't make any sense. There was no ROI mm. at mm. all, mm. you know. <laughs> In, in health. Um, so that was sort of the angle I took. Yeah. Uh, working for three terms in that space really made it clear to me we need love to be way more <laughs> understood and, mm. and, and accessible. Um, 
And that felt really overwhelming, you know, to, to your initial question to be at the top of my game very young in mental health. I was 24. Mm-hmm. I was holding, you know, ultimately one of the highest positions of influence in my industry mm. that you could nationally and to feel called to give it all up and, and really, truly just be a messenger of love mm. with no understanding of where that would take me <laughs> was a massive process which led me to write Love Out Loud and mm. that's a, um, a, a framework of, of nine stages of surrendering mm. to love. And that started to have a life force of its own and became a training um, and education company where we ran trainings and, and retreats. And early on, one of the people close to me asked, you know, what would the ultimate success of Love Out Loud be? And uh, at that point, I said, well, to create a, a true tipping point where we move completely out of paradigms of fear, you know, and, and into a civilization of love. I had no idea, you know, the, the grandeur of what would be required to actually serve that vision, which is Love Out Loud's vision to, to actualize a civilization of love by 2030. <laughs> you know, when you think about what, what touch points are needed to actually mm. make a civilization functional from economy to, um, you know, the very foundations of concepting the, the values of, of the civilization, um, technologies, health, education, what we're building really is the infrastructure of, of all of that. But it just started with feeling like I knew on a very deep level, even before I was exposed to, I guess, a lot of the prophecies that pointed to the transition that we're going through right now. That wasn't even in mm. my thinking. It was, it was more, in, in, I intuited this, this understanding because I was at, I guess, I was seeing the the damage of how we our society is built every day and so it's just i think anyone who sees that to that degree comes to the conclusion there's something really wrong mm. with how, with how we're doing this mm. you know something really needs to change on a on a deep on a deep level um so in in understanding that that's where I wanted to take love out loud, we started to apply the the thinking of critical mass as a, as a strategic way of uh, I guess measuring what that would mean. So sort of similar to hundred hundredth monkey theory, there's a point in collective consciousness that if you truly engage enough people, the mm. rest of the collective shift. Yeah. Um, which they say is between four and ten percent, but let's say four <laughs> percent. Interesting, because I. My teacher's teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, I don't know if you heard of him, he was a big proponent in the 70s who brought meditation to the West and taught in that time, people did not know what meditation was. And, it was, mm. and he always said it was 1%. Mm. He used to say 1%, if 1% of the world is meditating, mm. pretty sure, he said, then that would shift the collective consciousness in that way. Well, this is interesting, right? Because if you use, um, if you refer to, say, Hawkins' model of consciousness, it's vibrational, and I think mm. that that's a really powerful way of looking at it. So if you've got 4% of the global population resonating at love, mm. vibrating at love, maybe that's what's required to, to bring the rest of the population you know, into a state of love. But maybe if you have 1% of the population in a total space of enlightenment, mm-hmm. like imagine you had yeah, yeah. 1% of the population who are truly enlightened, I have no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, that wasn't that, even, that wasn't truly it, enlightened. That was just transcending everyday experiencing from right. a moment, whether it's 20 minutes, twice a day. 
Well, it's where it leads, right? Yeah, exactly. Eventually, that's where the definitely, path's going to take you if, if you're a, if you're yeah. a studious, oh, yeah. Yeah, diligent student. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's, it's no doubt that that's, that's fact. We know it. We can see it with the other hand, fear, as you were mm. kind of, you, what I hear from you is like fear is the perhaps number one hurdle towards mm. going through this. I mean, you look at the past two or three years of the pandemic we had, like mm. when fear was clearly very prevalent. Yeah. As that is high in the collective minds and of people, that's just re- that just resonates and mm. it's like a virus itself. A hundred percent. People, so no yeah, doubt that's sure. true. Yeah, and I think we we need to learn to sort of love fear for what it is mm. too, because it's it's primitive and it's um it gives us an experience of self. So I'm I'm curious to even as we move into this way of being, you know, what, what's going to be our concept of, of self and identity? Because I think that that will fundamentally need to change as well if we truly step out of these lower levels of consciousness mm. and love becomes our baseline. My question's always been, well, what next? Because at, at, from our positionality now as a world, love is like the ultimate state. Mm. But no doubt mm. when we're there, the next... um series of evolutionary milestones is going to reveal itself and that's mm. that's really exciting to me because yeah, it's, yeah. it's an infinite yeah it's an infinite trajectory mm. and it's really beautiful everything you said and the the work you did i just had images in the community of you know, like sitting in circles mm. i mean is that what you're doing it kind of it's just what i pictured it as mm. just that except you said the acceptance and the listening with full love mm. that model to yeah. To shift the consciousness. Without um compromising, like I'm also, you know, Love Out Loud's moved into to tech now and I'm very I'm a big stand for this isn't about going backwards, you know, this is about really embracing advancement. Mm. Maintaining relevancy is so important. Hundred percent. But it's what what's behind that progression, what's mm. behind that advancement, um, what's the what are the vibrational qualities, what are the intentions, mm. what are the beliefs? You know, as we move into tech, so the tech the, the IP that we're creating at the moment is what we call a C score, a coherent score, which looks at multiple data points that read truth in the body. So basically what that'll allow you to do is measure belief systems measure alignment to goal statements for instance so say take an example of um you want to actualize a civilization of love by 2030 it would be able to read uh using different biosignals how aligned my entire system is to mm. to that um outcome yeah wow so when you think about how we have been operating how aligned it is conceptually or how much it's actually living that uh, how much my somatic system and my subconscious mind and my conscious mind are actually in integrity yeah, and alignment nice. to that. Beautiful. So part of the thinking behind it is understanding that if in- integrity and truth are the, the, the gateway for limitlessness of love and the conscious mind is only 10% of our driving our experience, the rest is, you know, the, the other 90% is our subconscious belief systems, the trapped emotions, the inherited traumas, so on. This is why, for instance, if you tell yourself, I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. and go for a run and you consistently don't do it or you hit snooze, there's two parts of you that are in conflict. You know, your conscious mind is wanting to do this thing, but your subconscious is filled probably with limiting belief systems like you're not worthy of having a 
mm. great body, you're not, you know, you're not deserving of health, you can't do it, you're lazy, whatever, things that have been said to you, things that you've adopted from media, things that you have told yourself, mm. and it creates this resistance. And, you know, the truth about the human system is when your system is in alignment, there is no resistance to the things that you are <laughs> um, trying to make manifest trying to to actualize but very few people have this experience of their world experience mm. of their life everything's efforting everything's mm. hard work mm. um yeah so the 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 purpose of the tech is to bring a gateway of um communication to those parts of the human system so that we can experience that ease and, and reprogram recalibrate our subconscious minds and our bodies very quickly so we don't have to sit in hours of Mm. therapy because the subconscious always knows mm. why mm. you don't have alignment mm. what experiences contribute to uh the lack of alignment so to give an example if you if i was calibrating myself against that statement and say i had a i don't know 40 percent alignment i could also simultaneously ask why I don't have 100% alignment. What specific belief systems, what experiences have contributed to the lack of alignment? And the theory, the hypothesis is when you're programmed to a place of complete alignment, all of the resistance, because a lot of people will ask, well, is it, is it going to be like a magic um, manifesto that when you align, mm. you know, 100%, it just magically appears. No, it's more that when you are fully aligned to that outcome, the actions required to really bring that to life become easy, mm. become effortless. Yeah. You're not experiencing a friction. Yeah, so it's exciting. You know, one of the one of the things I've started to lead with in my pitch to investors, which <laughs> I thought would sound really out there, but people seem to be getting it, which I think is a sign of the times as well. Imagine there was a threat of a nuclear war tomorrow. But mm. in a single push notification, you could send an invitation to half a billion people to align their, their consciousness with the statement, I live in a peaceful world, and actually eliminate the probability of that happening from the timeline completely mm. through programming consciousness. Wow. Mm. Yeah, if you had to sum up the Vedic knowledge in one verse or one teaching, it's, it's established in being, perform mm. action. Mm. Yoga star Kuru Karmani. So definitely the first before we perform action should be establishing the being. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I just feel, I feel there's so many tools and techniques that people can be doing to align themselves mm. with love. Yeah. Whether it's meditation, whether it's health practices. And yeah, sure, I'm, I'm, seeing, it's te- I'm <laughs> seeing it now. There's tech yeah. people coming up with technology. So yeah. I'm excited to see what, what comes. Mm. So. I just want to like rewind a little bit back to your journey of creating this because it was clear when you were having anorexia nervosa, you were seeing it. When you were speaking to me, it felt I kind of was having some empathy that you were experiencing some lack in the system and some Mm. lack in your fellow humans Mm. or just that love that you needed wasn't there. Mm. And you mentioned that before you went to the, started the communities and started sharing that you received that you were inspired is that right yeah that's a great question two main two main points of inspiration one was um a true experience of surrendering 
because I'd reached a point in my journey that was, I didn't know how to help myself. I would liken it to an addiction. Mm. No, I didn't, I didn't know how to get out of it. And I felt it was an admission that I was not in control anymore. Mm. But through that surrender had, I guess, an experience of that enlightened state, you know, the, the grace of, of the divine really became known to me through that surrendering. Mm. The other more, Can you just unpack yeah. this a bit? Because <laughs> I just want to also add, like, eating disorders are one of the most challenging things I see in my clinic mm. and in Anorexia Nervosa. But yeah, let's talk can, about it. People don't enough. Yeah, and mm. I just want to unpack that, like, that process of surrender. Just if there's so many things we can do, and we were, I personally usually work mostly with the nervous system, but don't want to get so too extensive. And but just to maybe give a bit of a yeah what does surrender involve yeah i mean i had i felt like i had no choice <laughs> what are you surrendering I, I now, to how are you doing it yeah. like? well at the time it was very i guess it was a state of if there is a god please help me <laughs> okay. um which is obviously very different to my um relationship to surrender now because i'm in relationship with god which makes it a much more supportive process. But you have to start somewhere. And I guess fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, for me it was in extreme agony and suffering that I met that place because I couldn't do it anymore. So I'm, 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 I'm actually getting, I'm, I'm getting emotional because, mm. you know, you're saying you work with people in that place and it's, it's such a hard place mm. to be in and it's so not understood. Mm. You know, it's, the interventions are often so unrelated <laughs> to to the problem. The problem yeah. isn't food. Mm. But obviously there's very, you know, severe physical implications of not of not eating. But, you know, to use my own experience, it didn't matter how many doctors told me you're going to die. It didn't wake me up to the thing I needed mm. to be woken up to. What I was looking for you know, in this pursuit to be acceptable, in this pursuit to be enough, in this pursuit to be perfect, mm. in this pursuit to be controlled and right and proper and all of those things, I was seeking love, you mm. know. But I put all of these conditions around love and believed because I didn't have an idea of how lovable I was, how lovable we all are, that in order to be worthy of love, those were the boxes I had to tick, you know? And it, it's it's heartbreaking because when someone's in that place, you know, take a, a young girl that's struggling with anorexia, a lot of the time they're incredible minds, you know, it takes an incredible diligence to, to, to even end up in that place. Not, And I don't say that to um, condone it in any way. It's just to acknowledge there's a, there's such a demonstration of strength. But imagine if that strength was applied, you know, in the mm. in the love of life itself, in the love of of you, in the love of humanity, in the love of God, you know, and a willingness to surrender these. David Hawkins calls them positionalities. This position of in order to be worthy of mm. that, I must do this. Yeah. If you can find that same strength inside of you, mm. you know, and apply it to overcoming those positionalities. And I believe, like, if you're listening to this and this is something you struggle with, I believe in you. 
You know, mm. you've demonstrated every day that you have a huge amount of tenacity, that you have an incredibly strong mind mm. and will. Is your will strong enough to surrender it over to God? You know? Mm. Yeah. It's not worth dying for a concept of the ego, mm. you know? Yeah. It, it's ultimately, if I may clarify or just mm. put in input, it's like surrendering and, and maybe your experience as well was surrendering yeah, your individuality or your ego. Mm. I have to be this, I have to do this to the present. Yeah. And to your maybe universality mm. of there is a higher intelligence orchestrating mm. everything which is going on. And I don't need to perhaps fear and try control or worry so much. I, mm. I, it's not like that's going to shift my physical state. I'm yeah. still in this state, but perhaps shift the just um, allow yourself tension. to heal. You know, it's don't yeah, yeah, and it's it's a very like yes. I really okay. appreciate how hard it is, and and my body has gone through such a journey in that healing process. Mm. You know, and I remember hearing, and I by the way, just side note, I don't think it has to take this long, but I remember hearing someone tell me it really is going to take about seven years for your body to fully heal and recover mm. from this. And I remember, you know, a couple of years out of um, the eating disorder or at a place where my weight was restored and I felt like, you know, I was <clears throat> back to living a functional life. You know, there's no way this is going to take seven years, but every year there was another layer yeah. of healing, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have my, um, my cycle for almost eight years, you know. Mm. And I had sort of come to the conclusion that I probably wouldn't be able to um, have, a, have, a, have a child. But it was the constant process of allowance, mm. you know, allowing my body heal, trusting my body. Which, by the way, is huge with amenorrhea, <laughs> loss of cycle. Yeah. I see a lot, like, actually, I treat a lot of amenorrhea. Yeah. And whether it's due to being underweight, yeah. which is obviously very common. But a lot of it is, is literally stop. Women can become um, obsessive. Or, yeah. you know, about trying to get their cycle back. But really, yeah, when they kind of accept it and they go, yeah. That's right. And getting it back after that many years was like um, literally like going through puberty again. Mm. You know, it was like, mm. wow, you know, meeting myself in a completely yeah, different way. And I thought there was something wrong with me when I first, you know, because <laughs> I was so, it was so unfamiliar. Mm. And it's crazy. Since then, it's like every 28 days. Like mm. it's my, beautiful. I got to a place in my journey where I trusted, I guess, my body felt that it could trust me and mm. I, I trusted it and then that was restored and that was healed and that's really possible, you know, mm. on every level. You know, doctors might tell you that you're not going to be able to heal your bone density, you're not going to be able to heal this. Don't just don't believe something that just through the laws of consciousness is so not true. Yeah. But also don't put pressure on yourself, <laughs> you know, to, yeah, it's a fine balance. But the relinquishing of control, um, yeah. I actually think for all disease, and, and this is something that I've, I've sort of analyzed and thought about and considered in, in my work as a facilitator over the years, when you've got someone who has any form of disease, there has to be, uh, I think, a point of reflection of where am I not in integrity because that's, that's allowed the, um, the, the conditions for a mm. disease to manifest. For someone with anorexia, that can be really hard to hear because the association of identity is I am so in control, you know. 
But is it really integrity? Is mm. is your heart and your mind and your body, you know, truly aligned and are you doing what's right for, for those things? There's that and then there's a surrendering of all that's not that, <laughs> you know, mm. a willingness to hand over the attachment to what's taking you out of integrity. Um, it's a spiritual path. And I've always said this for eating disorders, that it's, I believe, if, if you truly want to make a full recovery, similar to the 12 steps, mm. you know, at some point there's going to be a meeting of purpose, a presence that's greater than the addiction. And you're going to be invited to make a choice. Yeah. And for me, the purpose in me was so immense, the feeling of what I wanted to live for, mm. actually, and what I wanted to serve because I had that experience. You know, when you've had an experience like that, all you want to do is help people understand that that exists, you know. And integrity <laughs> is really helpful to understand that, mm. what, what you want to live for, what is your mm. purpose because I've just had mm. thought of, but there's people who were like, but I'd, don't think I can't think of any purpose for myself. Mm. What am I? What have I got to offer? Like, mm. yeah, Nicole, you're doing amazing things, speaking all mm. around the world. But me, like, I can't think of anything. But when you are perhaps really tapping into your integrity mm. and your authentic self, everyone is unique. Everyone has the talent and gift and beauty. Whether it's just sharing it with your neighbor, one person, it's still so huge. So, I think yeah. when you really act from that. And don't don't glorify that. how you see someone else's path. Yeah, you know, because like when you are truly um, in alignment and willing to submit to love, mm. it's not. There's many intersections where you're like, I really don't want to do that. Mm. You know, and I, I even said already in this in, in this podcast, like ten years ago, if you had told me um, that I would be doing what I'm doing now, there's no way I would believe you. It wasn't. It wasn't my will. At times, my will's taken over the journey, and that's actually been a huge um, lesson. Mm. It's put me on a deeply painful learning journey mm -hmm. where I've had to realign and, and you know, be willing. Mm. And I think in, in a lot of spiritual masters will say at multiple points in their journey, there had to be a renunciation. So there's definitely been times, even in my journey since then, where I've become overly attached and I've had to lose something or mm. lose everything at times to to come back to the to the path so it's it's not as gl glorious as it might look from the outside don't underestimate if you're modeling someone that's truly on that path is a very mm. hard path i've had to give i've had to give a lot away mm. you know on on the in the process and it's easy to look at Instagram and be like, yeah, you're traveling the world. But what people don't see is the sleepless nights. They, mm. don't, they don't see the fact that I'm working across four time zones. Mm. I'm taking calls at 5 a.m. I'm taking calls at midnight, mm. you know, and that's not woe me. It's just don't, don't look at the superficiality of yeah. it because I think meeting your purpose and being in integrity yeah. is I am willing to choose this. I'm willing to choose what's right um, and what's true to me no matter what. And when you think about that in practice, in application, it's not, don't glorify it. It's a very humbling experience every day. Yeah. And it's, I think, a very misunderstood experience too. Beautiful. So I think it's really helpful to, to hear your story because it's so relatable. Mm. So surrender was a big thing, mm. which you did. And you mentioned there was a second uh, event or mm. realization that helped you evolve towards what you're doing 
yeah, it's a story that I I um tell a lot, and and that was of my school principal. So in amongst being surrounded by um so many people, I guess that didn't know how to lean in to that experience. He was really such an unlikely person to be that person. He was a school principal who was a middle-aged alpha dude, you know, a triathlete. <laughs> and one day, I wasn't at school very much, but one day that I was at school, he came and asked if I would have a conversation with him in his office. And interesting, you know, because all I wanted at that time was for someone to see me. And as soon as he mm. saw me, I was terrified and I just wanted to run, mm. you know, totally away from the mm. situation. <laughs> and I think that that's often, you know, something for us to look at. We want something, but then when it's there, we, you know. Um, but I felt a lot of shame, I think. Anyway, I I took his invitation regardless and I went and sat in his office. Is this but like I was, the first time someone saw you? Yeah, people had commented on mm. eating, they'd commented on my weight, you mm. know, but no one had ever been like, hey, I really want to know what's going mm. on, you mm. know, and truly it present, you know, a willingness mm. to truly be present. And I was so nervous that rather than sitting on the opposite side of his desk, I went and sat in the corner of his <laughs> room because <laughs> I couldn't be that uh, physically close wow. to him. I just felt so mm. scared. And I put my hands in this bracing position over my face um, wow. because I thought I was going to get yelled at. Mm. That's what my head was telling me, you know, and I was waiting and bracing. And, mm. and then he said, um, I'm not here to make you feel afraid, Nicole. I'm just here to let you know that you're not alone in going through what you're going through. Such a simple thing to say, you know, but I just broke down. I cried mm. and I cried mm. and I cried and it was, it was the first time, I understand now that it was the first time I felt the relief of not having to be something I wasn't, that I was able to just come as I was and be honest about how much pain I was actually in and let someone see that. And um, he just let me cry, which I thought was, you know, beautiful in and of itself. He didn't try and stop me or pat me on the back or he just let me cry. And after maybe 20 minutes mm. of crying and him just holding that space and silence, he, he said, he asked a question. He said, do you know what my favorite thing to do after school is? And I shook my head in my mm. state and he was like, well, my favorite thing to do, and it always has been since being an educator, has been to have a beer. I was obviously pretty confused by this. And I looked at him and then he got out a piece of paper from his desk and he said, I'm going to make you a deal. And he wrote on the piece of paper, I won't have a beer until you hit your weight target. And he signed it with a signature and a date mm. and he put it beside his desk. Mm. And um, I was obviously just completely blown away. You know, I'd never seen someone do something selfless like that. And I was confused. Uh, my my response was, you know, o overwhelming like gratitude, but genuine confusion <laughs> that mm. that someone would do that. And by the way, no comments of it's clear you you know have mental health issues, and it's clear you have an eating disorder. Mm. It was just, you know, this is what I want to do with you. So my next question was, why? Why would you do this for me? And he said, I'm never going to know what it's like to be a teenage girl going through what you're going through obviously, <laughs> but I know what it's like to be a human that feels like they're going through something extremely hard mm. and I know what it feels like to be doing that alone and I just want you to know that you're not alone. Mm. Wow. 
And it's not that that was the magic, you know, pill, that and, and the subsequent experience of total surrender that came after that was really, I guess, you know, my spiritual crossroads of are you really going to choose healing? Um, it was that extension of selflessness and unconditional love that even in amongst the process of recovery, which was very brutal at times, I had a guiding light. I had someone who who believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself and, and who, who was willing to be present to what was really hard, you know, and he stuck to that. When I was, um, when I had graduated and I'd hit my weight target, mm. I asked him, you know, what, what did it feel like a sacrifice? And mm. he said, um, I thought it would be a sacrifice. Like in, in the moment, I thought I was sacrificing something. Mm. But what it taught me was what I thought I was sacrificing, you know, giving up a beer versus what I gained. Mm by seeing you become the person you mm. are and that you know that continues to be so filled with beauty because mm. i feel a loyalty to what mm. he gave me in that you know and that that still you know 10 or well, 11 years later 12 years later still drives me and uh, if i can be that you know for people that mm. are working for love out loud if i can be that for a friend you know and ultimately it's I'm not giving that much mm. to me, but it can mean so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be, in my case, potentially the, the difference of life and death, definitely the difference of a life path. There's no way, mm. you know, if I hadn't seen that modeled, that I would have understood the power of it. Mm. Did, did he, after that time and during your healing process, was he in contact with you a lot? Yeah, I mean, it was um, even when I was at school, a lot of the time I had to um, eat under supervision and I was um, very, like it was a very uncomfortable experience for me to do that with other teachers Mm. where there wasn't trust. And so, you know, often he would would be that person for me. And um, he, when I started the foundation, he gave the the opening speech, (laughs) you know. Yeah, that was a continued connection. It's just in one to clarify that because it's not like it's as you said a magic pill mm. like it's that continual yeah. devotion and that yeah. continual attention and yeah love love <laughs> energy yeah. it's not just yeah i'll have a nice inspiring yeah. moment yeah. And then <laughs> let her totally that helps her but it is that continual yeah, so yeah. it's really beautiful mm. okay wow so i just want to say <laughs> <laughs> i'm feeling and just to share personally mm. i'm feeling a lot of compassion in this conversation mm. this episode mm. And perhaps it's not just because you're a person, because you're a great speaker, but also I think it's a, I think it's a result of the work you've done in yourself mm. and that love which you are unconditionally, like I see, mm. okay, I'm not saying this is the be and all, but this is my perspective, that you really have done the work to conditionally love and be open. I find this really openness about you. Mm. And that's allowed me to have this, beautiful compassionate insight into you why you just all the things you've said and so many stories it's an amazing experience for me i just oh, like to share <laughs> so it's that. nice to have such <laughs> compassion yeah, um i i just want to talk about one one thing i want to bring up on i guess love and emotion i just this you mentioned earlier really fascinating you said love is narrow it's like a narrow path mm. and the way i interpret that is and a question I did have is 
this lack of capability to a lot of people these days to go into the path of love or to feel their emotions. Mm. Like I'm in a men's group and we once were speaking about how, how little or some men did, but a lot didn't like, don't say I love you to their Mm. parents or to their brother and sister. And me, including I've had this in the past, Mm. but it's like, that's how maybe is that what you meant by narrow? It's like this, uh, we're not able to mm. open. <laughs> it's like for lack of for more of a, I don't know romantic kind of words, but open our heart. Mm. But it's like not able to go down that path of exploring love. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it takes a huge willingness, mm. you know. And when I say it's a narrow path, you know what I'm sort of concepting or pointing to is there's a lot that you have to leave behind. You know, but you, mm. but in the process of that, you gain everything, mm. and that's that's the that's the deal. There, there was this awesome like picture that I saw once um, that I think illustrated it so well, and it was this hand of God asking this little girl to take. He he wanted to take her teddy, and uh, she was resisting. And then there's the other hand of God, which has an even bigger teddy that she can't <laughs> see. You know, <laughs> and um. Yeah. Yeah, like that's the invitation. Like it's a you've got to constantly mm. relinquish, but you've got to understand that in the relinquishing, there's so much. You know, there's so much, and it's um, it's just back to devotion and and yeah. surrender. Like it's and are you willing to do what's really hard? Because I think when people hear the words surrender and they hear the words mm. relinquishing control, it's it's there's almost this and love. This connotation that at all times it feels effortless and it feels um, so free, but it's that these things are the outcome, you know, that they're the result, they're the fruits of being willing, you know, to have that difficult conversation. Um, I was speaking to to my my coach before and um, even she was sharing, well, we were both sharing that as we've gone on this path, we've had to make decisions and have conversations that are so confrontational you know and it's it's a different that's a different kind of love and it Mm. it can be very narrow like if you're seeing i've been really trying to look at my own integrity as i go into the next kind of level of responsibility in my leadership as we um near the closing of an investment round it's really important for me like if i'm going to hold this much i need to really see where my integrity is vulnerable, where where I have weaknesses, where I can be corruptible, you know? And so this has been a personal exploration for me in a very deep way recently that it's also the willingness, if you are in um, connection to someone that isn't in integrity, there is a sense of enabling, you know, that goes with that. And are you willing to have that uncomfortable conversation to say, hey, actually, this I can see this isn't in integrity and I can't be an enabler of that. I can't be a stand for that. And that, that's been super hard for me because I think up until a certain point, I wanted to believe that, well, you know, m- my friends don't have to be, you know, at the same level of um, integrity that I would maybe want for myself or, I don't know, a partner or... Um, who knows, you know, a, a, a teammate. Um, but actually I do think that there comes a point that if you, the, sh- the sharper you want to be, the more devoted you want to be, it, it's going to come a time where it's going to start to ask a lot, you mm. know, and you're going to need to be willing to 
to really go there and to to confront and and probably be misunderstood mm. in it as well until mm. maybe that same person you know starts to see for themselves using that as an example yeah so that's what i mean by narrow that it's you can't be a bystander of all that's not love it's not just about choosing to be loved when it suits it's also mm. jesus flipping the tables outside the temple you know because uh, they were gambling and um disrespecting mm. you know the, the the temple i think that's a great example mm. in a parable of that he wasn't eager to please those that weren't choosing right now yeah yeah and uh, it's good what you said earlier about not you're not giving up it's not like we're giving up money and beautiful material things and teddy bears like it those are the fruits of when mm. you have that integrity it's a picture of god holding the bigger teddy bear is good so. can you not identify with it yeah, yeah. and then the more you don't identify it's it's, yes. it's a paradox right the more you don't identify with it the more likely you are to be trusted with it yeah, beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah and and that notion of i guess closed heartness mm. and I, and I, and i recognize that especially working with ayurvedic principles that different body types different mm. individuals have a more willingness to be kind of more open more be able to experience their emotions it's a more feminine thing perhaps to mm. explore your emotions mm. and feel them <laughs> and mm. express them but i'd love you to yeah, just about the fact that it seems like a lot of society have lost that capability to to feel yeah or to have an open heart but all that <laughs> say the lack of an open heart is due to a broken heart <laughs> um oh heartbreak it sucks doesn't it but it's also so beautiful mm. um yeah the way i see a closed heart is at some point the heart's been broken big or small and, and rather and than conscious or unconsciously yeah totally and um, probably you know our first loves which were our parents or our mm. primary caregivers in some way would have figured out how to break our hearts you know probably also un unknowingly and if we don't go into that heartbreak and really learn how to feel all of it and be sovereign again then of course it's going to create it's you know the subconscious mind's like i don't want to feel that again i don't want to feel that again and that over time that will um that will accumulate and calcify and, and build these walls mm. around the heart and the way through that is you've got to feel it. Mm. You've really, you've got to be willing to feel all of that heartbreak and trust, I guess, any pain, you know, whether it's physical pain at the gym or moving into heartbreak, there's got to be a um, connection to what's on the other side mm. of it. And I guess like not a lot of people have had that experience yet of, when I go fully into this pain, even when every part of me wants to resist the pain and fill the void and distract myself and whatever, whatever, when you actually move into it, the liberation, you know, the sovereignty, the independence, you know, the expansiveness, that the ability to empathize and have compassion and love, all of that amplifies mm. so significantly. And that can sound like, you know, I know how this sounds. I've I've heard these things when I've been in the midst of heartbreak and it doesn't seem to bring, you know, that much mm. respite mm. because you're heartbroken and your heart's mm. broken, you know, and you're figuring out how to heal it. 
but there is, I think, that part of you that you can connect to that does have faith, that has strength. Um, another thing that I've had to remind myself in feeling heartbreak to that level is it, it can be easy to, to adopt this kind of black and white, all or nothing thinking, which I think humans are really good at. Like, I'm so heartbroken, mm. therefore I'm not mm. strong. And it's like, or I'm not coping. But actually... If you just get out of that story for a second and be present with the heartbreak, you're feeling it and you're surviving it. You know, you are strong enough. Yeah. yeah. It's like a sense of aliveness when yeah. you're feeling it. <laughs> yeah. You're coping, yeah. you know. You're doing so much better than mm. what you give yourself credit for. You have a heart. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you feel. yeah. Um, yeah, and there's so many ways to, to, to heal and go into that if you want to, like, you can do Ayurvedic treatments, which do it. You can speak to counselors, psychologists, mm. groups. I like group counseling, men's groups, women's groups, other gender groups, whatever it is. What, what <laughs> All do the you, things. Yeah. Do you, want, do you have any yeah. things you want to mention to, for those? Or heartbreak? Yeah, healing, healing interventions heartbreak. or healing paths. Oh, um, other than what we're creating. Um, okay. Well, what are you creating for that? Do you, do you offer... Well, the, the tech will be able to okay. look into why, you know, what belief systems mm. um, are contributing to maybe blocking, you know, that healing process. And maybe it's something like if I feel pain, it will kill me. You know, but we have crazy belief mm -hmm. systems floating around in our subconscious mm -hmm. mind. So I like to look at it through that, um, from that lens, because if you can clear the belief systems that are creating the resistance to actually moving into it, Maybe it's I, I won't be okay on my own or, you know, um, it's scary to be lonely. These are belief systems that many of us carry that block us from moving fully into the emotion. So if we can get rid of those um, those belief systems, then hopefully people, uh, you know, mm. actually will feel through it. Mm. And when you're present with pain, it's actually quite amazing how quickly it can shift. The drawn out long process is often not being able to fully go into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also that journey strengthening you. Mm. So, you know, my, my most recent heartbreak is taking me a long time to heal my heart fully from that. But I also can see that at every stage of the healing journey, my capacity is increasing so much. So mm. it's, it's like a fitness, you know, if I was to completely heal it you know and then go through that transformation overnight that's a huge you know transformation to integrate in that amount of time mm. so being gentle with myself and yeah. allowing that time has <laughs> been really important but yeah i i think um stillness whatever mm. bring like rather than saying go to men's group or go to this like ask yourself what truly brings you stillness no, i agree it's the first it's the first thing establishing yeah. being before my action yeah, yeah and whatever whatever that yeah. is maybe it's yoga maybe it's the group maybe it's the yeah. counselor like but be present to that yeah because mm. i think a lot of people spend a lot of hours in therapy and it's not getting them any closer to mm. stillness yeah absolutely. you know <laughs> absolutely beautiful yeah. so how can people get involved with love out loud what are the different ways that people can interact and what services the programs mm. Yeah, so um, retreats, mm -hmm. programs, uh, two signature programs, facilitated training and Master Heart. Um, Master Heart's a space to come and have difficult conversations mm. <laughs> and really, really have them. Yeah. Um, Is that in person or online or both? It's, we've done it both ways. Okay. Yeah, our next um, series of events for Master Heart is in San Diego. Mm -hmm. 
and then Silicon Valley. So that'll be an interesting mm. adventure. Um, facilitator training is training in the methodology of Love Out Loud um, as a facilitator. And then our retreats are very much a deep dive into into you, a rite of passage experience. Mm. Um, we also have, you know, a community on, on all the platforms you can find us and a Telegram group as well. And, and then our tech will be um, – we're actually inviting community members to beta test the tech with us. So if you're interested in mm-hmm. that, you can you can do that. That would be awesome. Um, we're launching the tech first in our B2B space. So if there's any business owners or managers of teams that would be interested in working with us as we put the tech through clinical trials, that's mm-hmm. a really interesting cool. way. Yeah, and maybe the, the clinic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what about like investors in the tech? Mm-hmm. Is that possible and is, is it? A profit. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Well. So it's yeah. a commercial business. Um, yeah. We're in a funding round at the moment, mm. uh, so now would be the time. Mm. <laughs> now, over the next say month, um, mm. maybe two months until we fully close the round. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're we're commercial, um, a commercial entity. I don't know how much you want me to share, but we're we're do- we're in our seed round at the moment. But it's an ambitious seed of seven point five mil USD. So it's an American company. Yeah, and so that's that's a lot to do with the development of the technology and, and putting it through the correct trials. And I'm considering doing my PhD over the next few years as well mm. on on the tech. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Anything <laughs> else you want to? You're going to labouloud.io. Uh huh. What's IO stand for? It's a uh, tech. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you can also go to intruth.io, which is a spe- the specific um site for the tech. Okay. And yeah. any other research? You've got a book, Love Out Loud, you mentioned. You've got a yeah, podcast, Love Out Loud. Podcast, um, audiobook, and, you know, you can follow me. I'm usually speaking to the various ways of engaging. So if you just follow me on my Instagram, that's probably a good place mm-hmm. to start. Oh, cool. that's what, Nick Gibson, is it? Nick Gibson, yeah. Cool. Thank that's you. It? That's Beautiful. it. Beautiful. Amazing. Thanks, Nick.